Well, let's see. According to uh, the clocks, which are set precisely to uh, uh, EDT, that's East Side's daylight time, uh, <laughs> it's, it's about 9 o'clock. <laughs> and um, we'll be, uh, as I had mentioned, uh, I will be teaching the rest of the summer, which for me, I enjoy it, but uh, you may struggle with it. The biggest problem I have right now is to decide which which judge I want to, uh, not judge, which uh, prophet I want, minor prophet do I want to go next. But for right now, for the next two weeks, we're going to look at Joel. And so, uh, uh, how many people are familiar with Joel? Well, yeah, Betty, Betty, you wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to tell me whether I got it right or not. I mean, it's... now Joel is is one of those books that's uh, I I find very interesting because, well, once we get started, you'll find out the first interesting thing is we have no idea. So why don't we begin with a prayer? Gracious Lord, I just give you thanks for today for the beauty for the warmth of our of summer, for the moisture we've had. Father, for your blessings throughout this, this world and the, throughout the people here. Though we do have those that are struggling with health, and we, we ask your blessing upon them. Those that are struggling with, uh, with spiritual issues, we, we pray, Father, that you will uh, comfort them and help them through those struggles. Father, bless us this morning as we study the book of Joel. And uh, try to find a message for us uh, today so that we can apply it in our own lives. Thank you for your love and your care and your grace that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, what do we know about the person who wrote Joel? Well, it's pretty easy. I mean, all you got to do is look. All you got to do is look. Verse 1, that's all we know about Joel. The word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Okay, that's all we know about Joel. Okay, so we don't know very much about him, but, but, but well, when, did, when was this written? Any clue? Scholars, of which I am not, they're very certain about it that it was written. Uh, some say it was very popular, actually, in the uh, 19th century. Uh, some say that it was around the 9th century B.C., during the reign of Joash, making Joel one of the earliest of, uh, of the prophetic writings. Some would say, arguing that, Okay, this was written to Judah. Judah's the only one that's mentioned. They use the word, word Israel, but at this point in the context of it, it's really speaking not of the kingdom of, of Israel, but the Israel, the people of Israel in general. And so uh, the only mention of, of, a, of a part of Israel is Judah. And it also has mention of the, of the temple. It doesn't say which temple, but if at least if it's speaking only of Judah and it's speaking a lot of the temple, uh, they th they say well then it probably is after the fall of Israel and before the fall of Jerusalem. So that would put it about. Uh, 630 to 587 B.C. <clears throat> however, there's always plenty of howevers. However, they don't mention a king. When they mention about the leaders of the, of the church and, or leaders of, of the people and, how, and the re leading the people in response to the tragedy that's hit it, going to hit. They only speak of the priests. So 
if that's the case, then that puts it even further back. After the, the maybe 520 to 500, uh, after the return of the exiles and after the, uh, and after the new temple is, or after the temple is restored in the second temple period. And there are others that want to push it even earlier, maybe as, as late as 400 BC. So we have this, this, this um, uh, answer to it comes out that the, uh, this book was probably written. <laughs> it was uh, somewhere between 899 and 400 BC. Very fine tuning here. So we don't know the, who wrote anything about the author, anything about Joel or his father. We don't know when it was written, other than it was sometime before Christ. <laughs> it was in the Old Testament time. Uh, it's quoted in, in the New Testament. Peter quotes from Joel in, uh, in his uh, preach on the day of Pentecost, his sermon on the day of Pentecost. So at least it was one that people knew and they felt was, was worthwhile. So we don't know who wrote it, we don't know when it was written, but we do know what the event that was going on. Does anybody remember what the event is? I'm going to, I'm going to go over to the author of the book. Well, actually, it wasn't the author of the book. Probably the mother of Joel. Uh, Betty, what was the problem? <laughs> <laughs> I can't hear you right now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, okay. We have a swarm of locusts. And as we get into uh, a swarm of locusts, I, I want to jump well, one book forward, or if you like, uh, back a few weeks. When we were reading Amos, and they speak of... Uh, of God saying that, you know, I tried to get your attention. Um, let me see where I, what chapter that is. Turn my notes here. Um, chapter four. Remember, he he was mentioning um, that I tried to get your attention. Um, starting in verse 6 and going through verse 11, he lists a whole bunch of things to get your attention. I gave you empty stomachs in every city, lack of bread in every town, yet you did not return to me. I also withheld rain from you when your harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, withheld it from another. One field had rain, but another had none. Uh, people stagger because they don't have enough to drink, yet you have not returned to me. Uh, many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me. I sent plagues among you as I did Egypt, killed your young men with the sword, along with the captured with your captured horses, I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, yet you have not returned to me. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You are like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me. So in the book of Amos, we see that God tries to get the attention of the people sometimes when they're when they've strayed from him, by sending catastrophes, setting period, periods without rain, or maybe a war, or a swarm of locusts. Locusts are a very interesting 
creature. What are they? What's a locust? Grasshoppers. Grasshoppers. Oh, but they're special grasshoppers. Yeah. Yeah, he's got different ones. He's got the great locust. He's got the young locust. He's got the middle-aged locust. You know, he's got them all in there. Uh, the locust is a grasshopper. Actually, it's a stage of grasshopper where they actually change from grasshoppers into something else. Um, the locust, or the grasshopper in particular, in the Mideast, it would be the African desert locust that they probably deal with. Uh, last, yes? What are those horrible-sounding things in the trees down the front? Kickers, yeah. Is that, a, is that a locust? No, but they were cousins. Cicadas, thank you. Well, they are loud. Uh, I don't know if the locusts are quieter when they eat everything in sight. Um, locusts, when a grasshopper and it usually happens after you've had dry seasons and then you get a very wet season. And so you get a lot of grasshoppers coming up and they survive. And if they bump into each other, they start putting out some serotonin. And as if they bump into each other enough in a four-hour period, they start changing their shapes, they're changing their themselves. They uh, become more aggressive, they get bigger, they uh, are becoming more gregarious, there's a good word for us. They, they, they herd the horde herd together, and soon you get this transformation into the locust form of uh, grasshopper. Not all grasshoppers have a locust form. Um, I think I've, I've heard something there's like there's 50 or 100 different species of grasshopper and out of those only 10 will actually uh, produce locusts. Um, and the desert, African desert uh, locust is probably the uh, best known. Uh, trivia, when was the last time we had locusts, uh, locust swarm in the United States? 1930, probably during the Dust Bowl. No, the, the last major one was further back than that. Uh, how many people have read or read to your children uh, the Little House on the Prairie books? Okay, and one of them concerns a locust swarm. And as a matter of fact, that was the last locust swarm in the United States. And uh, what I have read is that particular species of locust is now extinct. Uh, I don't believe that, but scientists say that it is. Um, it spread from the Dakotas all the way across into uh, the Midwest and Minnesota, spread up into Canada. It, it seemed to have been stopped by the conifer forests there. But everything in between was eaten. Uh, 1874 to 1877. Uh, and so that's when the last one in the United States was. Though there was a, a, a locust swarm that got blown off course from Africa and landed in somewhere in Central or South America. But it never, they never caught on there. Uh, locusts, though, are a very interesting creature in that they, uh, they're, uh, what can I say? They're, they're a special form of, of grasshopper, of certain species of grasshoppers. Um, and, uh, and they start this swarming behavior. And they literally block out the sun. They're so thick. And they just land on where the swarm lands. They just eat everything in, its, everything in sight. Uh, they get in the houses. They crawl over the buildings. They get into your food and they eat it. Uh, 
it's not it's not a it's not a any kind of a laughing matter you might say it's not a it's a very serious issue and if you're in an agrarian society such as Judah and Israel at this time that meant death that wasn't just an inconvenience oh well I'll have to wait and I'll go down to the store and buy some more wheat or anything everything is eaten right to the ground and the good thing about it is when they're all done they lay their eggs and the next year a new crop of them comes up and they also turn into locusts so locust swarms usually go for a couple of years or plagues if you like and that's what we find in Joel so if we start out in chapter 1, hear this, you elders. Listen, all you who live in the land, has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. Let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts of Eden, what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have, have left, other locusts have eaten. So, recognize that even though this is being prophesied to Judah, or told to Judah, that this is going to happen, or maybe has happened, uh, it's not, it wouldn't be confined to just Judah all of that of the middle eastern east range would there would be hit uh speaking of the 1874 one the only reason that uh many people survived in the dakotas is because they had the railroads and they were able to get food to them the kansas governor actually uh started a food drive for the people and they were able to get food out to them because of the railroads. Well, they don't have that in Joel's time. So it's a very serious issue. Everything that's edible, even inedible for us, is, is, uh, is eaten. Uh, and so he continues on, wake up, you drunkards, and weep, which is really, I think, very interesting. You know, okay, you drunkards, you were going to weep, because guess what? There's going to be no new wine, and it's been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without numbers, as teeth like a lion, fangs like a lioness. It has laid waste my vines, ruined my fig trees, stripped off their bark, because it'll eat the bark right off the trees, uh, thrown it away and leaving the branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings, drink offerings, are cut off from the house of the Lord. How are you going to bring your grain offerings and your drink offerings when there isn't any grain and there's no wine? You can't. So even, you might say, the, the Lord is not getting the offerings he was that he would normally have. Um, also remember the Levites. And he doesn't mention the Levites here, by the way. He does mention priests. But the Levites, where did they get their food? From the people. If the people are starving, they're not going to have anything to give to the Levites. The Levites will be starving. More so because they're second in line. I think before it would be very difficult to give my full tithe to the Levites if I didn't have anything to eat myself. And so there's not one class of people that's not suffering. There's not one class of people that, that, can that are going to be able to survive this. Uh, the one, an important aspect of it those tithes, if you remember, every three years, the tithe went into the storehouses 
for the purpose of uh, of having a supply of food in case there's a drought or a famine. Uh, so uh, in in uh, we find in going to say Deuteronomy, uh, I think it's probably Deuteronomy 15, that range, uh, that every three years you go, you send your tithe to the Levites and it gets stored. I guess they read, they must have read Genesis and seen what, uh, how Joseph managed to survive it, uh, have his uh, Egypt survive a seven-year drought. That's you store the sur surplus that you have. Well, there isn't any. Hey, yeah. So the fig trees and the vines were just, I mean, how many years does it take to bring those kind of things back? Uh, that's a question I had for myself. I don't know. Uh, I do know that most trees, uh, they have two sets of buds on, on every branch. And when spring comes, one of the, one of the buds is, is made active. The other one stays closed. And so that's a God's way, I guess, of helping trees to survive a sudden destructive uh, event. Uh, when I was a kid, it was uh, tent caterpillars. I was used to enjoy tent caterpillars because they'd make a mess, but, but you could get out there. The, the solution to it was take a rag, wrap it on a hoe, dip it in kerosene, and light it and burn the <laughs> Being a young man, you know, you're always a pyromaniac anyway at heart. Uh, but the uh, uh, getting getting back to it, uh, that second bud stays dormant, doesn't bud out. And so, like a year ago, we had that terrible snowstorm at the end of May. All my oaks were killed off. All the buds that are open, everything was killed off. And then it just sat for six weeks, eight weeks. And then, you know, it's just, oh, okay, we'll try it now. And they send out that other bud gets uh, activated. And it grows. And that's the survival mechanism that's sort of built into trees. But when you have a swarm of locusts, even those are going to go. Unless they move on because there was nothing left to eat. But... Locusts are so dangerous, and, and in an agrarian society, it's life and death, because it goes on for two year, two or three years, not just a, 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 an instant. Well, what do you do? The swarm of locusts is coming. Uh, notice that the word that they use, uh, the words, the day of the Lord. Uh, we've seen that uh, a number of times uh, in... Joel, the day of the Lord, the term, is used five times. Twice it's used as from the standpoint of judgment on Judah. And that's the locusts that are coming in our judgment of, uh, on Judah. But it doesn't say for what. And three times it's used in the opposite sense um, where it's making judge, judgment on the enemies of Judah. And that will be all in the third chapter. Um, so, what do you do when this happens? We can continue on and uh, fields are ruined, ground is dried up, grain is destroyed, new wine is dried up, olive fails. Um, Wail, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat, for the barley, because your harvest uh, of the field is destroyed. So what do you do in a situation like this? Remember, going back, let's go back to Amos. What was, what was this saying? I sent all these disasters to you, and you still didn't turn back to me. You still didn't realize that you're in my hands, and you didn't come back to me. So what's, what should be the reaction to it? They're praying for manna. <laughs> well, just about. You start praying. Um, the 
starting in verse 13, again in the first chapter. And by the way, Joel can be divided up into, into two distinct sections. One is disaster and the other is blessings. Um, I like to have put a, divide it really into three sections, uh, taking the first part of the, uh, of the, of the blessings section and setting that, aside, setting that off. Uh, that's where the, uh, the, the quote comes from uh, that uh, Peter uses at the, uh, on Pentecost. But what do you do? Well, in verse 13, it tells you. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God, for the grain offerings and the drink offerings are withheld from the house of house of your Lord or house of your God. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. It's interesting that they're going to mention that they're going to have a fast when there isn't any food anyway. But uh, I, I don't. I think what they're saying is they see the swarm moving across the lands, and we'll get to it in the. In the uh, I think it's in the second chapter. But um, declare a holy fast. There's still some food left at the beginning. But fast. Summon the elders and all who live in the land and uh, to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Uh, this is one of the reasons why they think that it's, uh, that it's after the exile. Uh, because... Who are you? You're not summoning, summoning the king. You don't have mention of the high priests, uh, though you have mention of the priest. But the elders are what are being being called, uh, and so it, the implication is that this is after the exile, when you don't have a king anymore, or at least for, uh, not as you had before. Cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. So here we have the day of the Lord is coming. They did something, but Joel doesn't say what the problem was. They don't say why God has sent this swarm at, at them. Uh, perhaps it's natural. I mean, it happens. It's a natural thing. But he's saying that you need to lament and return to me and fast and mourn, and then maybe I'll push it aside. Regardless, has not the food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? Seeds are shriveled beneath the clods, Storehouses are in ruins. Granaries have been broken down, for the grain is dried up. How the cattle moan. The herds mill about, because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. Sheep will eat anything, right? And uh, cows are a little more picky. Uh, but remember, a, a, a swarm of locusts is not really particular. They eat everything. Uh, actually, I, I was looking at it up this morning. Uh, basically, grasshoppers will eat anything. If it's green, they'll eat it. Uh, and even if it isn't green, they'll eat it. They'll eat anything. Uh, and so here you have the cattle of the field are, are dying because they have no food. Even the sheep are having a hard time finding anything to eat. The grasshoppers or the locusts are very thorough in the matter. They eat everything, right down to the ground. Uh, but sheep, who are known to, to eat anything, and, and, and the stubble as well, they're suffering as well. And so we go back to what do we do? Well, to you, Lord, I call, for fire has devoured our pastures in the wilderness, the flames have burned up all the trees of the field, even the wild 
Uh, even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up. The fires destroyed the pastures in the wilderness. Total destruction. And what do you do? You cry out to the Lord. What do you do? You mourn. What do you do? You fast. What do you do in the day of the Lord when the food's been cut off? What do you do? And then he turns around in the second chapter and he looks at the locusts from a different aspect. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill, for all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is close at hand. Again, that's the second mention of the day of the Lord uh, from the standpoint of of a day of judgment on Israel. They, towards the end, it'll be judgment on others. Uh, <clears throat> it's close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages. So here in chapter 2, and it goes from there all the way, well, through chapter 11. Uh, but really going, I, I will, I'll take it down to chapter, to verse, chapter 11, to verse 11. But it goes to me, this section ends in verse 27 of chapter 2. But uh, you, you look at this, they're like an army. Now it could mean it could be a metaphor for the armies from the north and for Babylon, which would be why they put this, you know, maybe the dating around five, uh, you know, five twenty to five uh, five eighty, not five twenty, six twenty to five eighty seven, before the destruction of the temple. Uh, they might, because it looks like, a, if it's using it metaphorically as an army, this is how they come. They march like an army, and he describes it in militaristic terms. Uh, they have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like crackling fire consuming stubble. The mighty army draws drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale wall, walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving in their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through the darkness without breaking, breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run Along the wall, they climb into the houses. Like thieves, they enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. And the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders ahead of the, his army. His forces are beyond number. And mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great and is dreadful. Who can endure it? So that's the third day of the Lord. So they come like an army. Oh, and I skipped that. I'll go back on the, to the third verse because it, it gives you an excellent picture of what, what a swarm of locusts does. Before them fire devours, behind them flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. So what do you do? What do you do? Even now declares the Lord, in verse 12, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Going back to 
to Amos when <laughs> in the fourth chapter where he's saying that I sent these plagues to you, these problems with you, these wars, locusts, and you still didn't turn to me. He didn't return to me. So what's the first thing he's saying to do? Return to me with all your heart. <coughs> with fasting and weeping and mourning. The next one I, uh, is just a beautiful, beautiful verse. One to, re one, one to remember. Rend your heart, not your garments. When you're in mourning, you just rend your garments. Well, he's saying, don't rend your garments, rend your heart. So the implication is that whatever the problem is, it's that their heart is not with God. Their heart is somewhere else, probably with themselves, probably with, uh, with, with power or with, uh, with their, their daily desires and needs and greed. Uh, rend your heart, not your garments. A show isn't going to help it. You don't want to just put on a show of sitting there in sackcloth and ashes and rending your garments as though it were a show. No, I don't want a show. I want you to rend your heart. Give me your love and your heart. It's, it's a, just a, a beautiful verse and one that we need to keep in, in mind for ourselves. What God really wants in our lives is us not to rend our garments, but to rend our hearts. Who knows? Uh, render, uh, rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God again. Second time he's mentioned this in this section of the. Return to the Lord your God. Why? Well, because he is gracious and he's compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. We have that. We've all memorized that verse. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love. And he and he, uh, and so he relents from uh, from calamity. Who knows? Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing grain offerings, and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Boy, don't you wish you would have the ability to put a, to make go down and make a grain offering to God? Well, if I don't have any grain, that can't be done. Or a drink offering to God. If you don't have any, if the vines have been destroyed, you don't have that. So what, what do you want? Maybe he's going to relent, and then you'll have that grain, and you'll have that wine, and you can make the offerings and give thanks to God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast, a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his, his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests and the minister, who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, Where is their God? Uh, this the, That last section there is, is something is a common uh, reply to God that you see from the from the Israelites in general uh, in saying when they're being punished, do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, basically among the nations. Yes, it, it, it overwhelms me a little bit in thought that these people don't understand the connection between. The fact that they have gone away from God and all these things are happening to them. I mean, do they not see that 
through the prophets, they're saying return to God, but they're not. Is well, it we, selfishness or blindness or? Well, we know with from the standpoint of Israel, because the kingdom of Israel, because of what we saw in Amos, that the answer is no. They didn't see that God at all. They God lists. I sent all these these plagues, if you like, to you, all these calamities, and you never got the hint. You didn't turn to me. You didn't return to me. Bet uh, Psalm thirty-four. 18 says the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and save that be of a contrite spirit. Okay, what was that verse again? Psalm, Psalm what? Psalm 34 18. 34 18. And, and that really speaks to what God is asking them. My fingers don't work. They gotta make pages thicker, you know that? Without making the Bible thicker. They make pages thicker though. Um, 34 what? 18. 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit. Well, that's the people right here. The righteous person may have uh, oh, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord. Lord delivers him from them all. Uh, here we have a case of what do you do? Well, you write, you make yourself right with God. You turn back to him. Whatever you were doing that was wrong, that his prophets have already told you, he's angry with you, turn back to him. And then he'll relent because he's gracious and he's loving. And he doesn't want he doesn't want to bring calamity on his people. We may be speaking the obvious here, but there in verse fifteen, blow the trumpet in Zion. They would blow the trumpet at the times of the sacrifice of the lambs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Blow a trumpet in Ryan, Zion, and that's a good point. I mean, that's a time of sacrifice. Well, you, there's nothing to sacrifice. And declare a holy fast. Uh, fasting is, a, is, is an interesting thing. Um, it's not something we're very fond of doing. In our modern era, you don't hear it spoken of too often. Calling a fasting and calling a fast. It focuses your mind on God when you fast. And here, uh, it should be a time of, of intense devotion and prayer when you're fasting. We need to consider that in our, in our own, own lives, in our own modern day lives whether we should fast and how and when but that's one of the, that's one of the first things that that you find people when they're in mourning or deep anguish or in need of God's favor fasting is one of the major ones right there with sackcloth and ashes basically fasting but if you want if you want to write yourself with God Fasting is a part of that. Not words we not not a word we like to hear. It's a, one of those four letter words, right? That uh, we don't want to utter. But uh, fasting. And we're just about out of time. But uh, any questions over what we've covered? And uh, next week we'll finish. We'll finish uh, chapter two, and we'll finish chapter three. And of course, when we finish chapter three, we finish Joel. Any questions? Larry? Comment. You mentioned that people wondering where God is, uh, Israel wondering where God is, but a common reaction even to this day when calamity, hardship strikes anyone, 
we, we question God. Where is God? Or someone reminds us, you believe in this God, why, why could he let this happen to you? Yeah, and, and um, I think we all suffer from that disease. That when things go are bad, we go to God and why are you letting this happen, Lord? Uh, and without thinking that, well, well, maybe I'm not right with God. And that doesn't necessarily mean that getting right with God will solve the problem. There are things that happen in life that are beyond our control, and maybe even. Uh, that maybe even that are, uh, uh, God is not going to control. Uh, he doesn't control family, for instance, and when you have family problems or you have struggles with that. But you still need to make yourself right with God. First thing is make yourself right with God. Um, reminds me when Paul was saying that uh, in all conditions, I'm content because I have God. doesn't matter. I have God. Uh, one of my favorite lines is when uh, Paul, after whining to, uh, to God three times to take this impediment he had, whatever is thorn in the flesh, and uh, I'll paraphrase and say, uh, with God, and, and he'll say, would you quit whining? Isn't my grace enough for you? Maybe sometimes we need to learn to quit whining and remember that God's grace should be sufficient. Mm -hmm. we got to remember that we're in the world and things happen to us, even if we are being a good person. Yes. So we, just, what so did, we need to accept them and trust God to take care of us. What did Jesus say? In this world, you'll have problems, you'll have trials, but don't. But be strong, good heart, because I've overcome the world. But in this world, you have trials, Larry. So this says this is a judgment from the Almighty. Will God judge America? Ah. <laughs> question that Big question. Boy, I wish I knew. Um, I think he judges all nations. Um, and so and so I think I so so I think the answer to that may be yes, he will judge us as a nation. As a church or as the people of God, and maybe the community of God, he will judge us as well. Similar in a, in a similar fashion, I think the way he judges Israel—that uh, he might be very harsh, but he'll be very gracious. If you can imagine harshness and grace at the same time, but yeah, we will get judged. I think. Anybody else? Any other comments? So it's. Uh, We'll leave off here. In many uh, people will divide the book of Joel into two halves. I like to make it sort of three, but two halves. And starting in second, chapter 2, verse 18, is the second half, which is basically God's blessings for coming. And so God has sent this, this uh, tragedy. And you can turn, and you turned to him. Uh, I might. The assumption I have is that they did mourn, they did fast, they did all the things that they should do. Made themselves right with God, and now he answers them with, uh, starting in the 18th verse, uh, and with his answer to them, and then the third chapter is uh, is even looking further in the future. So, next week we will finish Joel, and I will have something. I'm still trying to decide what minor prophet I want to take up 
It's got to be one I can cover in four or five weeks. So, one more question. Yes. Uh, about fasting, yeah, you said uh, <coughs> we, when we decide to fast, how we get fast. Um, so, so, I guess, that, and I've always understood from the Bible that there are many different ways to fast. The 24 hour fast, if you, if you will, uh, that I, I, I engage in sometimes. Uh, and then there's the 40 day fast. And, and that one's dangerous. And then there's the don't eat meat fast. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, we see that. But I, I think that the term fast, as it's used in scripture, is, uh, is okay, where you withhold food. I don't know about drink. And I've ha I had been asked the question, well, it, but is it okay to drink orange juice? And I think it comes down to a, the answer to a lot of things that God has. He's not too much as interested in the form as, as to the, the heart. Um, so, yeah, if I'm fasting by withholding uh, from eating, uh, but I have orange juice or something that has nutrition in it, no, I don't think you're breaking a fast. That's not what he's about. The hunger itself will be there. And God, and, and, and when, when I fast, if I, if, if I'm, whenever I get hungry, I pray harder. Because that's what first, that, that reminds me why I'm doing this. So, any other questions? Fasting's an interesting subject. But he's called, they're called to. Thank you. We'll see you next week. And we'll finish up with Joel. And the week after that, we'll finish up with another minor prophet. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.